All right. Our last evening together. Can you hear me all right? Yeah? Okay, good. So we're going to talk about the mendicants of Kosambi. Actually, I, we didn't hear of any bhikkhunis being there, but the bhikkhus were fighting. Yeah. And I mentioned last night, they show up in a, in a couple of suttas, and it kind of looks like this is the first round. And um, we'll take a look. I just added this reflections, practice, and character of the noble disciple, because this is what the Buddha tries to talk about. Basically, he's saying, you guys, you're not it. <laughs> you got to get with the program. <laughs> okay. So I've heard at one time the Buddha was staying near Kosambi in Gosita's monastery. Now, at that time, the mendicants of Kosambi were arguing, quarreling, and disputing, continually wounding each other with barbed words. They couldn't persuade each other or be persuaded, nor could they convince each other or be convinced. Then a mendicant went up to the Buddha, bowed, sat down to one side, and told him what was happening. So the Buddha addressed a certain monk, Please, monk, in my name, tell those mendicants that the teacher summons them. Venerables, the teacher summons you. Yes, reverend, those monks replied, and they went to the Buddha, bowed, and sat down to one side, and the Buddha said to them, Is it really true, mendicants, that you've been arguing, quarreling, and disputing, continually wounding each other with barbed words, and that you can't persuade each other or be persuaded, nor can you convince each other or be convinced? Yes, sir, they said. One of the interesting things in the suttas is whenever someone comes to the Buddha, well, there's a couple interesting things. First, whenever someone comes to the Buddha and says, so-and-so is doing this thing that's not right, the Buddha asks for them to come to see him, and he never assumes that what he was told is true, which is great. This is a great thing to implement in our own life, you know, find out what the other person's story is, experiences, and then go from there. And the other interesting thing is the people always tell the truth. It's like you can't like fudge it with the Buddha. I guess your head would explode. <laughs> so they always tell the truth. And here we are. Yes, sir, we're doing that. We are. Yeah. So what do you think, mendicants, when you're, ang- when you're arguing, quarreling and disputing, continually wounding each other with barbed words, are you treating your spiritual companions with kindness by way of body, speech, and mind, both in public and in private? No, sir. So it seems that when you're arguing, you're not treating each other with kindness. So what exactly do you know and see, you foolish men, that you behave in such a way, this will be for your lasting harm and suffering. Now, sometimes people point out that the Buddha wasn't always soft. (laughs) You foolish men. (laughs) And what I've noticed is that he doesn't say that to outsiders. He says that to his disciples. If they're misbehaving, he gives it to them. But he has the the sort of... um, as I said, the permission, you know, they're his students, and it's his 
you know, responsibility to tell them how it is. And, you know, this is going to be for your long-term harm. And then the Buddha said this. Mendicants, these six warm-hearted qualities make for fondness and respect, conducing to inclusion, harmony, and unity without quarreling. What six? Firstly, a mendicant consistently treats their spiritual companions with bodily kindness, both in public and in private. So whatever actions you might do, you're doing them with kindness for your fellow monastics. I mean, I don't know if I've talked about this at all, but monastic life can be extremely challenging. You live with these people, you work with these people, you practice with these people, and sometimes you don't get to pick who these people are. So (laughs) it really can rub up against each other. And yet, you all have the same goal, the same intention, and you're all trying to keep this pretty high standard of, of um, you know, behavior. So there are some real advantages, of course, but this group, the way the backstory goes is that one of the monks left some water in the latrine, like, you know, they have, like, probably an outhouse or something, and you have water in there to, whatever, wash or rinse things, and and um, one monk left some water in the jar or the pitcher or whatever, and another monk accused him of that being some kind of um, transgression against a rule, and he didn't think it was a transgression against a rule, and this is what started the argument. According to the commentary, one of them was kind of the leading person expert on the monastic code, and the other one was kind of the leading expert on the suttas in the group. And they pride and arrogance and, you know, wanting to be right. And then they kind of got their following with other monks, both sides, and they just couldn't, couldn't work it out. I don't know. Again, it's commentarial. But we can imagine things like that happening. So then the second thing is, so we got six coming here. The second one is consistently treating their spiritual companions with verbal kindness and with mental kindness. So even what you think about them, you think with kindness. Furthermore, a mendicant shares without reservation any material possessions they've gained by legitimate means. So, I mean, of course you want to gain anything by legitimate means. Not like hinting, hey, could you give me... None of that, but, you know, like appropriately. But you're you're willing, you're um, without reservation willing to share your possessions even down to the food placed in your alms bowl, using these things in common with your ethical spiritual companions. 
Furthermore, a mendicant lives according to the precepts shared with their spiritual companions, both in public and in private. Those precepts are unbroken, impeccable, spotless, and unmarred, liberating, praised by sensible people or praised by wise people, not mistaken, and leading to immersion or leading to deep meditation. A mendicant lives according to the view shared with their spiritual companions, both in public and in private. That, it, that view is noble and emancipating and leads one who practices it to the complete ending of suffering. These are the six warm-hearted qualities that make for fondness and respect, conducing to inclusion, harmony, and unity without quarreling. So you're generous with each other. You're keeping your moral precepts really, really well. And you're sharing a goal. And this goal is the goal of liberation. It's the goal of awakening. You know, this goal you share is emancipating. And we're going to hear more about the goal. So he says, of these six warm-hearted qualities, the chief, the most important one, is that view that is noble and emancipating and leads one who practices it to the complete ending of suffering. It holds and binds everything else together. He said it's like a bungalow. The roof peak is the chief point which holds and binds everything together. And we're building a at the at the Vihara. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> we're building a, a kuti, and it has a cathedral ceiling. It's not very tall, but it's you know it comes to a peak, and it's got this rafter running down the middle, and so it's a really visible roof peak. You can everything kind of hinges on that. So clearly, <coughs> excuse me. So clearly, this this goal, this shared goal, is the the part that keeps it keeps it all together. <coughs> and how does this view lead to the complete ending of suffering? Well, it's when a mendicant has gone to the wilderness, or to the root of a tree, or to an empty hut and reflects like this. Is there anything that I'm overcome with internally and haven't given up because of which I might not accurately know and see? So this self-reflection is like, what is, is there anything that I am holding on to inside that can keep me from seeing the way things actually are? And that can be views of self. It can be, I mean, that would be an interesting reflection, like what, what might that be? What could keep me from, sometimes it's fear. You know, if, if we're afraid of taking that step, what's it going to mean? You know, to open up to completely be able to see the truth of reality. <coughs> Excuse me. So if, 
And then secondly, if a mendicant is overcome with sensual desire, it's their mind that's overcome. So it's like what these might be the things that are that you see that are in there. If there, if it's if the mendicant is overcome by ill will, dullness and drowsiness, restlessness and remorse or doubt, pursuing speculation about this world, pursuing speculation about the next world, or arguing, quarreling and disputing, continually wounding others with barbed words. It's their mind that's overcome. So here he's talking about, you know, sensual desire, ill will, dullness and drowsiness, restlessness and remorse and doubt. Those are the hindrances to meditation. So some of you might recognize those as the five hindrances. (coughs) And then beyond that, having this, like, thinking about, you know, the world the next world, kind of the, these are the kinds of speculation, or when, usually when they use this word speculation, it's about thinking about things that have no real answer. And you just kind of spin in that. And you're caught up in it, and you're not going to be able to get, get very far. And then the last thing is what these monks are actually doing. They're arguing, and they're disputing and they're all caught up over this minor thing you know how most arguments are you don't even remember what started it you know it's like did you want to say something tom question for you is this view pertaining to right view is that what's referring to or it's not exactly is it because he's talking about you know like how does this view lead to the complete ending of suffering it they it never uses the Pali here, the samaditi, the right view. So I think he's saying, you know, you share this view, you have to do this work, and you're, you're bent on awakening, and this is the stuff that gets in the way. And you have to be harmonious in your community in order for the, you know, to make progress. And, you know, if, if you're you know, caught up in arguing with each other, you're really not, you know, your mind is obsessed. If your mind is obsessed, you can't, can't make progress. I think in some translations they use obsessed instead of overcome. They understand there's nothing, if you understand, so you, you, you reflect on all this and then you see, oh, there's nothing that I'm overcome with internally, that I haven't given up, because of which I might not accurately know and see, and my mind is properly disposed for awakening to the truths. So um, in case it wasn't clear, that first part, this part, (coughs) no, not that part, next. The first part is when you're reflecting, is there anything that I'm, overcome, that I'm overcome with internally and haven't given up because of which I might not know or see? And then the rest of this, these are the things that could be obsessing my mind. And so, like, you know, these are the kinds of things that could obsess the mind. And, of course, there could be other things, but these are the ones that are probably, well, obviously that last one, really... 
uh, hitting home for what's happening in the moment with this group. <clears throat> so when you see that there's nothing in the way, then you can know, well, my mind is properly disposed for awakening to truths. And he said, this is the first knowledge that they have achieved that's noble and transcendent and is not shared by the ordinary person. So the noble disciple, they're going to look at this. They're going to know whether there's anything obsessing the mind. They're going to let it go. They're going to know when there's nothing left obsessing the mind. And then they can say, okay, this is something that's, you know, beyond the norm. This is the first thing that kind of sets the noble disciple apart or sets this person now apart from the way they used to be. Furthermore, a noble disciple reflects, when I develop, cultivate, and make much of this view, do I personally gain serenity and quenching? So quenching is an interesting, it's like to be quenched, it's kind of like to be cooled, to be calmed, to be satisfied. In other words, am I content here? This is I'm able to um, be serene. So when so they understand, yeah, when I develop and cultivate and make much of this view, this emancipating view, these components we've seen, I personally gain serenity and quenching. This is the second knowledge. Furthermore, a noble disciple reflects, are there any ascetics or Brahmins outside of the Buddhist community who have the same kind of view that I have. And I, th- I think, again, it's like, well, let's see if we can round out what this view is. Um, a large part of it has to do with not-self, which is distinct from what other philosophies usually present. <clears throat> And so this is the third knowledge. Furthermore, do I have the same nature as a person accomplished in view? And what is the nature of a person accomplished in view? Though they may fall into a kind of offense for which rehabilitation has been laid down. So that's breaking any of the rules. The the rules that we have have different levels of importance or Um, heaviness. And there are some rules that if we break them, we can never be a fully ordained bhikkhu or bhikkhuni again. Like, if we were to have sex with someone, you're just out. You can't come back. (coughs) Or if you intentionally kill another human being. Or you intentionally steal something that's valuable enough that they would put you in jail, like grand theft or something. Or if you would claim you have spiritual powers that you don't have, deceiving people with some claim. And there are some other things for the bhikkhunis that the bhikkhus don't have, but the idea is in those cases a person is so far from being a holy person that you just, 
You can come back as a novice. I've known people who have done this. Um, they can still live in the monastery, but they can't take on the full ordination again in this lifetime. But that's really rare. Those are just kind of like major problems. But there's uh, all the other rules about conduct. And fortunately, there are levels of those rules that keep you away from those big ones. <laughs> like where it comes to sexual activity, we're not supposed to sit on the same bench with someone. We, you know, uh, They say have the opposite gender, but you have to kind of know what you're attracted to. And <clears throat> you're not supposed to be in a room alone with them. And there's all kinds of things that keep you from getting closer to something happening that would be very much outside what's acceptable. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of different rules. And so they're here they're talking about any of the rules that have an opportunity for rehabilitation. So it's anything up to um, the ones that would be a deal breaker, let's say. And so when, the, when anything like this would happen for the noble disciple, they would quickly um, admit it. And they would want to um, clarify it and reveal it to the teacher and, or, or some other trusted spiritual companion. And having revealed it, um, that they would restrain themselves in the future. And every two weeks we have this process of confession where we talk about whatever rule we might have not kept the way we vow to keep it. And those can be very small things, but it helps you be mindful, it helps you be impeccable, it helps you be able to talk through challenging situations because sometimes things are a bit at odds with each other, like... We're supposed to be easy to look after, but some of the rules can make that pretty complicated, especially in today's world. So you may have to make judgments, decisions about how you're going to hold things in a way that makes sense and doesn't become a burden for people. But you can have that discussion with another trusted bhikkhuni, and then, okay, in the future I want to handle it this other way. I can recommit. And this is, we can... Do this with the five precepts. You know, you, you do something that, yeah. You know what I said there? That's not really quite true. I was kind of trained to cover something, you know, and I don't want to do that again. You know, kind of re, recommit to truthfulness or whatever it is. And, and he compares this process to a baby putting his hand out or his foot and touching a hot coal and how quickly they draw back. And so that's how, you know, if, if a person is a noble disciple, they're going to really have a reaction to having done something that's not in line with being a noble disciple. So they, and they understand that I have the same nature. So you, when they look at that, is that, is that how I handle things? Am I like right on it right away? Yeah, I'm handling things the way someone, I have that nature or that reaction, the same as a person accomplished in this view. 
That's the fourth knowledge. That they can, you know, these are things you can look at and say, yes, this is, this is what's happening for me. Furthermore, the noble disciple reflects, do I have the same nature as a person accomplished in view? So it's the same question as before, but a different reflection. This is the nature of the person accomplished in view. Though they might manage a diverse spectrum of duties for their spiritual companions, they still feel a keen regard for the training in higher ethics, higher mind, and higher wisdom. So... You know, you live in a monastery, there are things to be built, things to be maintained, there's always work. Um, it's easy to get really caught up in it. But the noble disciple is always also really committed to the practice. And <clears throat> it's like the cow with a baby calf. She's grazing, but she's always kind of got her eye on the calf. And that's kind of a nice simile. So that when they see that in themselves, they say, I do have the same nature as a person accomplished in view. This is the fifth knowledge. And then, do I have the same strength as a person accomplished in view? And what is that? The strength of a person accomplished in view is that when the teaching and training, so that's the Dhamma and the Vinaya, are proclaimed by the by the Buddha, by the Blessed One, if when that's being taught, when the teaching and training proclaimed by the by the realized one or the Buddha are being taught, they pay heed, pay attention, engage wholeheartedly, and lend an ear, really listening. And when that's their um, kind of response, attitude, as soon as the word of the Buddha or the the rules, the monastic rules, are being taught. They're right there with it. So this is so you you can see. Oh yes, this is how I respond. This is what I want to be doing. This is how I'm doing it. That's the sixth knowledge. And then again, do I have the same strength? And what is it here? It's the strength of a person uh, that when the teaching and training proclaimed by the realized one is being taught, they find inspiration in the meaning and the teaching, and they find joy connected with the teaching. So that, too, is part of it. Not only are you really super interested and you want to really absorb it, but you also are inspired by it. So seventh knowledge. So when the noble disciple has these seven factors, they've properly investigated their own nature or their own the way their character is at this point in their uh, development. With respect to the realization of the fruit of stream entry, so this is like the Buddha saying, if this is happening, this is part of the result of stream entry. A noble disciple with these seven factors has the fruit of stream entry. And that's what he said, and the mendicants were satisfied and happy with what he said. So he, he took that problem that they're working with uh, and he put it into this context 
to say, you know, what are you really doing here? And how are you going to move forward? So take a look at each of those pieces and see where you're at with it. And then, of course, there's always that, you know, like if that's not there yet, as soon as you put your mind on it, you see, oh, yeah, this is really um, what happens when I'm in tune with this training and this life. Then, you know, we can adjust. So, noble disciple, ordinary person, how do you think any of this applies in lay life? Is it much different? Not much different. What do you think? You know, if you have a project that you have to accomplish together, yeah. you need all of these things in order to make it work. Or you get stuck in yeah, yeah. So a project, I don't know if everybody could hear, when you have a project you have to work on it on with a team, then you know you really have to have all these in place in order to make it work. Otherwise you get stuck. You okay? Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. Yes? I mean, I... Yeah. That, you know, we're going to see things differently. We're going to have different experiences. We're going to have different um, approaches. And uh, I don't know how I would take pieces of this and, like, start internalizing it. More like, do I want to be a relationship? Is that what, you know, <laughs> is that what they were asking? Like, what is. Yeah, so. Right. And, you know, like for, for this group of quarreling monks, I think the, the point that Buddha is making is you got to look beyond this immediate disagreement. This isn't what's important. You know, um, this, this example comes to my mind as something Ajahn Brahm talked about when um, there was an incident I don't know, I think probably in Australia at the time, where someone had um, flushed a Koran down the toilet. And there was this actual violence that broke out. I mean, people were extremely upset and offended by that. And there was a news reporter who went around to different spiritual leaders and asked the question of what would you do if your holy book was flushed down the toilet. And I don't know what all the different answers were, but Ajahn Brahm, when he was asked, he said, I'd call a plumber. (laughs) I'm going to have to use that toilet. He's like, you know, it doesn't matter what they do to the books, and it doesn't matter what they do to the statues, and it doesn't matter. If I get angry about it, I'm the one who destroys Buddhism. They're not going to destroy Buddhism by damaging a copy of some book we've got. And it's important, you know, it's like looking beyond the immediate situation 
What's your real intention in relationship? Why are you there? Why are you in this relationship? Why are you in that group that's doing this project? There's something bigger, hopefully, that's more important. And, of course, what the Buddha is saying is, I want you to see that you really do have the same goal. And that that's going to be important in the end. You know, it's not whether or not, you know, you agree with each other or somebody's feelings are hurt or this person's right and you're wrong or whatever it is. It's not what's going to be important in the end. But then on the way... There is work to be done. It's not like you just let the disagreement fester. We have to learn how to work through it, work with ourselves, you know, change our approach, gain more skills. I think when he's talking about this, he's really trying to lay out, okay, if you're on the road to enlightenment, then you got to really listen to the teachings. You got to really take it seriously. You got to really get get yourself inspired by it. And and what is that in the in the jobs scenario? You know that you have some feeling about this project that it's actually worthwhile. That you're actually pro- producing something that you want to produce. That's the ideal, anyway. You know to. I mean, even if you're just in it to earn the money, <laughs> there's, a, there's a reason to be there. And if you're going to do something, give it your all. As another teaching Ajahn, Ajahn Chah gave, there was this man who went to Ajahn Chah's monastery and he had traveled from a long way and he didn't have a lot of time. I think he might have, I don't know what his, his reasons were for the short period of time he had to be at the monastery and... While he was there, there were a lot of people. Um, he didn't get a chance to actually ask Ajahn Chah anything. There were a lot of people talking to Ajahn Chah. And finally, you know, it was getting close to the time he was going to have to go, and he just decided to let go of the idea of being able to talk to Ajahn Chah, and he went out. But he, what, it was a, he had a little bit of time, so he picked up a broom, and he was sweeping. This is very very common activity in the forest, especially in in the jungle. And he's sweeping. And then he feels someone behind him, and he turns, and it's Ajahn Chah. And Ajahn Chah said, when you sweep, give it all you've got. When you do anything, give it all you've got. And he walked away. And this man said that was exactly the teaching he needed. You know, you see that this is worthwhile. This is what your real goal is. You give it all you've got. And, and to do that with everything. Even you rest, really rest. You know, you, you, you come to retreat. Give it all you've got. Don't go halfway. And, and it, it feels better. And it, and it is true that we have to have balance. Like, the resting is important. The sweeping is important. Doing the dishes is important. Cooking the meal. It goes along with that. Everything we do is a gift. We do it as a gift, and you give it all you've got. And it doesn't matter sometimes if you're tired or not. You can, you can still step up. 
Sometimes it matters. You gotta go. You gotta go take care of yourself. Give that all you've got. And so the Buddha is kind of saying to them, "Hey, you gotta put your attention on the right things, and then give it all you've got. You know, really give it, really give it your attention." And what else was it here? That's the inspiration. The strength. This, you know, keeping keeping the big goal in mind. Even if you have to do all kinds of other things, you keep that that idea of I'm I'm practicing to get to a certain point. I know a lot of times it's like, oh, you don't need to get anywhere. The Buddha didn't teach like that. It's not like you're going to get anywhere exactly, but you're going to develop the mind. You're going to develop the heart. The Buddha was like, you train your mind. You don't just like watch things go by. You proactively train. You improve your skills. You admit when you make mistakes. And you forgive each other when you make mistakes. And you forgive yourself. And you let it go, and then you try again. And it's okay. It's okay to make mistakes. And all of this applies to our life. Yeah. Outside the Buddhist community. Hmm. I think um, I can see why this is here. Um, It brings into focus for the Buddha's disciples why they're where they are and doing what they're doing. And I think that, too, maybe we can see a way in our situations in our life why am I in this relationship, this particular one? There's some reason. There's some good reason. Or this particular place of work. And if I get to a place where nothing fits, um, I'm deteriorating. Other people are deteriorating. There's something I can't push my way through or find the skill to change, then maybe it is time to, to make a change. But I think a person, in this case, it's like, there isn't any other place I'm going to find what I've found with the Buddhist teachings. I know that. I've looked. <laughs> And also, I guess here, when you put your mind on that view and you're developing in yourself, what's the result? Are things getting better? Am I getting better? Am I feeling more peace? Is there more tranquility? Do I have more patience? Do I have more endurance? Whatever the kind of characteristic that comes along. That's, that's appropriate to look at at the time. Oops, same one. I don't know, did it go all the way? 
Yeah. Is there anything else? Is there anything in the way? What are the barriers in my habits, in my patterns, in my karma that I need to work through? Any questions or comments? Yeah, Ron. I mean, I'm just putting myself in, you know, a couple of like heated arguments that I've been in and just trying to like feel that. It's very difficult to, to go to the view part without what you say initially, which is kind of like a nonviolent communication where you're just kind of like, first of all, like remove yourself, go to your foot of the tree or whatever, and just relax. Like, you know, like you're. How to reflect on this. Yeah, exactly. So, Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of anger there. And then, like what they were saying, like, I'm going to try to convince you that I'm right, even mm-hmm. though that really works that way. Yeah. Um, but that's kind of the, where, where, where our argument is, right? We're like, I'm, I'm, I'm going to just pound you with my opinion. Um, yeah, and it doesn't go very well, like you said. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so I think it, I, I like how it's basically like changing the whole script. Yeah. Just, yeah. You know, look at yourself first. Like, what, what's really underneath that? Why does it matter to you so much? Yes. You know, is there fear there? Is there mm-hmm. embarrassment or whatever? And then yeah. come back with a more broad Yeah. And, you know, I knew someone who used to, who would say, I have to step away right now, but I'll be back in 20 minutes. That's pretty mature. <laughs> you know, the person who's standing there knows they're not being abandoned. You know, this person is like going to just phew, calm down 20 minutes. I can wait 20 minutes. <laughs> and so that's one, one important tool we can learn how to use. And there are others, like you mentioned, nonviolent communication. There's a similar, I mentioned. Um, I don't think I told everyone. There's this um, system called parent effectiveness training. It's also like leadership effectiveness training and teacher effectiveness training and all of that. And it's it's a beautiful set of ways of looking at how we get uh, into conflict and how we deal, how to deal with it, what to do, and so just developing these skills. And what's really great is if everybody in the um, the relationship is wanting to do that. Then it really can can take off and, and make a big difference. And, you know, there are all kinds of things we could do to work with the anger. And pretty soon you learn how to stop before anger is really there. And you, you're already... Track, backtracking and working through internally and supporting each other and working through. So I had this friend, close friend, who was a parent effectiveness training instructor. And it was, oddly enough, he didn't have any kids. But he was um, a Sunday school teacher. 
And he was teaching the, or, you know, it kind of it's teaching, but it's also kind of babysitting the little ones, like, you know, three to five years old. And he, he wanted to do it, but he said after the first two weeks, he knew he was in deep trouble. <laughs> and he thought, wow, what, what am I going to do? And he had this book, uh, Parent Effectiveness Training, on his shelf at home. He's a book nut, so he had all kinds of things he never read, and that was one of them. And he said he pulled that down, and he started reading it. And he was fascinated. And it was, it was incredibly valuable, and it really made it possible for him to work with the kids and even the parents. And then eventually he became an instructor, and so these classes go on for like, I don't know, six, eight weeks or whatever. And now I've, I don't have any contact with him. Anymore. This is like 25 years ago or 30 years ago or something. But I hear that that's still around. It's, there's, it's still happening. And he would, like, when he, if he were in a, a tense situation with someone, he was in a relationship and... She also wanted to learn, and so they would get in an argument, and he would just kind of like step out of the argument and coach her, <laughs> and she was in it, into it, you know, like both of them with all their emotions, you know, just kind of like, okay, now we're going to use I statements, you know? <laughs> and we're going to like, you know, let's see, though, and that wasn't quite an I statement, let me see, how do I do, you know, and um I mean, you can tell there's a lot of maturing that happens even in that, even in being able at mindfulness and that ability to step back into observing and, like, how do we do this differently? And, of course, it doesn't, it doesn't make the problem go away because you still have to work through that. You still have to learn how to compromise. Um, you still have to learn how to listen really deeply to each other and, you know, work, work, work on things. Um, but anyway, it's, it's, it's always, it's possible. And the Buddha gave so many tools himself. And then we can add these other tools in to accomplish the goal that's really needed. Yeah, Joyce? Uh huh. Um, Okay, so what I'm hearing is that by research, it's been it's been possible to show that a strong negative emotion, actually, its lifespan is like 90 seconds if you don't feed it. And of course, if we're arguing with someone, we're feeding it. So it's like the feeling. You know, it's there's so much um, benefit to be able to identify when this is coming on. When I was a kid, my mom, if I got, if I um, had the flu or something and I would be vomiting, she didn't, okay, my mom was a a little nuts, but she didn't like the idea of like having a, a pan or something to vomit in. She said I had to make it to the toilet and not vomit before I got there. That was the requirement because otherwise it's too messy. 
So I thought, okay, how am I going to do this? I had to start identifying the feeling before you're going to vomit. Like you get the saliva that gets going in your mouth, and it's like, okay, time to go. And so we have to do that with strong emotions. So you feel the anger coming. What happens? Is it the palm sweating? Is it, you know, like how fast does this come? It comes pretty fast, but then we can slow it down. That wedge of awareness can go in there. We think these emotions are automatic, but they're not. They're volitional. We do, we do have a moment of choice when we decide to go with it. And so we can learn how to choose not to. And then we also have to be ready to let go of that feeling of power, which is probably why we're you know, letting ourselves get angry and feeding it, because there's a feeling like I'm strong that comes in there, but it doesn't pan out. It's not real strength. Real strength is to stop. Adana? Yeah, so sometimes. Close. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Training as you were doing just intuitively um, in, in paying attention to the, to the, to the body. body. Yeah. It's really, really wise. Yeah. yeah. I think, uh, let's see, who, you did. Carolyn? Mm-hmm. And I recently got some help um, at Fort Refuge to distinguish between this is reflection, this is ruminating. Aha. So tell us what you see as the distinction. Or what's the... The distinction was that <clears throat> reflection has some movement forward. Ruminating tends to hmm. have a repetitive right. cycle. Yep. And Okay, so reflection has a movement forward and is geared towards action, perhaps. And ruminating goes in a circular kind of thing, and it doesn't tend towards action. Yes, reflection also is a little more like um, contemplation, maybe, where it's not so like, I'm going to figure this out but allowing the answers to come up intuitively. And ruminating is just, <laughs> she said that, and then that, that, and I should have said that, and I, you know, that's, you know, I'm like, you know, I, I didn't defend myself properly. You know, and like, what happens if we just step outside all of that? Like someone said, the Buddha's kind of trained to help these monks step outside of all of that. And really see, you know, what's the big picture? What's important here? Yes. Yeah. This was 
reflection can be really good. Mm -hmm. Illuminating, not so much. Right. (laughs) Yes. Then I asked it specifically what the distinction was. How could I recognize it? Yep. And that was so helpful. Yeah, that's a good answer. So, yeah, in, in thinking of things from the past, really, if we've already been over the ground and we know that it wasn't the most skillful thing ever, wasn't our finest moment, and we know what we'd like to do differently, it's best to let it go. How do you do that? A lot of times we want to let something go and we just, it seems like we can't. So one of the things that's helpful is to identify the toxicity of continuing to ruminate, uh, to continue to let that, um, you know, it comes up, it co- you can't help that, it comes into the mind, but then to follow it at all. So it comes into the mind and you go, no, this is, this is that unproductive, unskillful, toxic thought that I am not going to entertain. In the suttas, there's a, well, you've probably heard of Mara. Mara, the evil one. Mara's not the same as the devil. He's not so quite that evil. But he doesn't want people to get awakened. He wants them to stay in samsara because that's his realm. It's where he has the power. And he'll do all kinds of things to disturb people, annoy them, distract them, throw them off track. But when someone recognizes that it's Mara, they say, Mara, I know you. And then he disappears right there. And if we go, oh, thought, I know you. You're toxic. (laughs) I'm not going there. And then that habit of that coming up, because, you know, why do thoughts come into our mind that we're not, you know, like, okay, I've got another retreat coming up, and I'm thinking about what I'm going to teach. That's a purposeful investigation. That's not the random thought that came up from what somebody said to me or what I said, or what happened two years ago, or 30 years ago. That just popped in, you know, and that comes because of karma. Now, when we keep entertaining that thought, like it comes, and then you, and what's the reaction? Well, maybe it's, a, oh, yeah, I did that stupid thing. As soon as I do that, I'm feeding that habit then it's a it becomes then it comes again and you have the same response it comes again you have the same response and it's a habit you're just you just you know ingraining it but if it comes and instead of going into that negative scenario you just go no this is this is toxic this is unwholesome this is unhelpful this takes me down some path where I can't get anywhere. It's, it's this ruminating. It's this unproductive defilement. 
And so when we, when we identify it and we say no to it, and, you know, sometimes it may be a strong enough habit that we actually have to do something positive to counteract it and bring up, well, I don't do that anymore. Now when that happens, this is what I do. Or something like that. But generally I find that if you can get to that point where the thought, the memory comes up and you're just like, no, been there, done that, no need, no need. That's the easiest way for it to stop coming up. And then you start to notice, yeah, the mind is lighter. You don't have to be burdened by that again. You can if you need to. You can use the Four Noble Truths. You may not have to. If, it, if, you, if it's something that you haven't explored yet, then yes, turn towards the suffering that's there. Investigate it. Investigate the cause. Understand it, that whole sequence with the first three Noble Truths. Mm-hmm. Um, and my brother had shared a parable with me a couple of years ago about two monks and the nuns that they carry over a river. Do you know yeah, or the woman. Yeah, I've never heard it as a nun, Sorry, but, that's <laughs> but that, that's okay. We have to think about what she's thinking about. Okay, no. <laughs> a great story about yeah. Yes, yes, yes. And it's a, okay, so the story is, in case you haven't heard it, um, these two monks are walking along, and there's um, this woman, if I remember right, she gets, like, caught in the river or some reason, and, and she hurts herself, and this monk picks her up and carries her to the other side and puts her down. And then the two monks go on, or, you know, whatever, she's okay, whatever. So they keep, they keep going, and the, the, the monk who didn't do that is really fumy, thinks that, how could, and he's like, how could you do that? How could you touch this woman and pick her up and carry her? This is not appropriate. This is against the rules, and da-da-da-da. And the, the first monk says, look, I put her down way back there, and you're still carrying it. <laughs> and you know it's it's like you know but I know about mendicants and how they're so oftentimes really I mean we keep 311 rules you can get really focused on this actually I haven't seen it as much with nuns um, but the monks that you know I've seen they're so uh, especially if they're in a very kind of strict boot camp kind of monastery. They're so focused on doing this right, especially the Westerners. They're so focused on wanting to do this right, and they get really judgmental about uh, each other. And it can, you can really see how this can happen. And, you know, it's kind of like these, these guys here, you know, there's these ones at Kosambi, then they start to, you know, accuse each other, and they're really hanging on to this. 
And so, yeah, how do we put it down? Yeah. Well, maybe another dimension with the ruminating thought is also to express some appreciation for it. Oh, I know you're trying to help me. I shouldn't have said this. You know, mm. and, but I'm not going to pursue that mm -hmm. thought and let it go. And yeah. maybe that gives a little ease there to show some appreciation and love towards the thought. Because it's trying to help you ultimately. ultimately maybe. Yeah, if it is, I mean, I think I, I think it's like really good to come up with these kinds of approaches because different things are useful at different times, and so like yeah, there might be a a particular circumstance with the, what's going on in your mind that you bring some loving kindness to this, and then you know, and then it it goes away. You look at the result. Did I just feed this? Is it coming back for more? It's like, you know, feeding stray cats, you know? It's like, is it coming back again? Or am I really putting it to rest? Yeah, Carolyn? Um, I just have picked up something that um, Sylvia Bornstein, I think it's her. Yeah, and so you didn't add to the self-recrimination and yet another layer of, yeah, getting pounded down. Instead, it's like, no, sweetie, that's not what we do. <laughs> yeah, it's rumination. Okay, let's put that down. <laughs> yeah, Dorada. Uh -huh. uh, last night when I read this, today, like to this conversation now, if, you know, I can let that, um, that toxic hopelessness, like, go. Yeah. Because, okay, okay it's not that I won't get it. I can never, you know, they can't mm -hmm. do it. I can, it's more like we're all working. We're all working. And yeah. We're continue working. We're going to go back to that tree. We're going to go back. And even not ruminating, but letting some pieces go and, like, realizing all of this together. Yes, 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 yes. Thank you for that comment. It's so important that we remember that we can do this. Mm -hmm. And the Buddha said at various times, if you couldn't do it, I wouldn't teach it to you. <laughs> you can do this. <laughs> and the other thing about mon monastics is they don't suddenly get skill and awakening or levels of awakening just because they put on their robes and shave their heads. There's still all kinds of stuff. In the suttas, a lot of it is very uplifting and inspiring, and then the monk, something happens, and then at the end he gets enlightened, and it's all nice. And then you read the Vinaya, and it's like, oh, my goodness, they did that? <laughs> that rule had to be made because somebody did that? <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's, I'm so glad you came around to that reality. We are all working on it. 
And one of the pitfalls can be you put on the robes and shave your head, and then you think you should look perfect and try to puff something up that doesn't work either, of course. Yeah. Yeah, Sophie? This one, the first knowledge? Yeah, I mean... Is there the something internally... Achieved ...is perfection. And I think... I'm sorry, what? I thought it was progress. I will never, under any circumstances, manage to finish overcoming internally the things that pop up. I might... No, that's not the point. That's not the point. So when he was talking about the things that hinder us... As we walk the path, we will be able to go beyond the five hindrances, beyond the central desire, ill will, um, restlessness and worry, sloth and torpor, doubt, and so on. And we don't necessarily, we can't even even when that's just um, episodic, so you're you're without it for the moment, for the Meditation practice, that's still already such a benefit. So it is a process. It is progress. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is, this is about seeing that, uh, if you see it, and then you've, you have something come up and it's not that way now, okay, then you work with it. And what he's kind of saying here through this all at the end, it's like with stream entry, some things don't come back. They, they're gone because of those fetters that just fall away completely. And that's why with a, for a stream enterer, there's no rebirth in any kind of state of deprivation. Lower realms, that's over, because the mind can no longer go back to that. It's no longer kind of messing around in extreme lust or anger in that way or, you know, like really believing that this is a self that just goes away entirely. The doubt about the Buddha Dhamma Sangha is gone. The wish or the tendency to break the rules or wanting to break the rules, that's gone. And, oh, just a minute, Donna. Go ahead. The noble disciples are the bhikkhus and the bhikkhus. And the lay people. monasteries or are we noble disciples? Yeah, this is for, I mean, one of the first suttas we had, it said male and female, monastic or lay, and as I said, it's kind of nicer now to leave out the gender thing all entirely, really, because the Buddha wanted a place for everybody. And everyone, any of us, all of us can be noble disciples. And we start out by, you know, let's see if we can act like noble disciples and see how this goes. We can develop this. Yeah. Donna?
Yeah. I mean, sometimes I'll go back, but you know, the beauty of it, and I think that uh, the love I have for it is that these changes do happen. Yes. 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 Yes, definitely. Going forward, step by step, looking back, feeling good about it, knowing the goal is there. So one simile, I think this might have been Ajahn Sumedho, said, you know, it's like you've got the guiding star, or, you know, that's the goal, but you also have the path right here. So most of the time you're watching the paths so you, so you don't stumble and fall. But every once in a while you look up at the guiding star to make sure you're going in the right direction. And that's the kind of idea. Yeah, if we get goal-oriented, so this is one of the reasons why I think so many of the teachings in the West don't really include a lot of the developmental or proactive practice because Westerners have this tendency to get so goal-oriented. We get like, oh, I'm going to achieve this and do that. And it actually stops the the development sometimes, you know, so that really so much of this has to come from patient endurance, being consistent, observing, really seeing what's there, being incredibly honest with ourselves and and just moving along one step at the time at a time seeing that improvement having mudita for ourselves that appreciative joy that we're making progress and we really do see that progress and having mudita for each other when we're making progress and it's wonderful to be in a relationship where you're both working on things, and you can share that, and you can help each other. And we've been living together for eight years, and you know we didn't know each other before. And you know, there's always like people have different minds, you know, and different histories and different sensitivities, and it it takes a willingness to really un- come to understand each other. And, and to notice how we can be supportive and still take care of ourselves and just, you know, like, keep going. Don't give up on each other. Yeah. Do you have advice for those of us who may not have such a supportive relationship to do this work beyond here? So, yes. I think, first of all, it's good to find like-minded people, even if it's online. Now we've got that option. You can, you know, join in with different things. Like people come to our programs from England, France, Finland, Mexico, you know, the Northeast. There's quite a few people from, you know, Washington, Canada, Oregon, um, California, wherever, New Mexico, Delaware. <laughs> um, and, you know, in our case, I mean, I'm just this is just an example. So in our case, 
it's a relatively small collection of people. Maybe any particular meeting is like 20, 25 people. We check in. We talk to each other about what's going on. Um, people get in touch with each other outside the, the formal group. A lot of us are going to go to Thailand together. We're going to teach a retreat in um, southern Washington. A lot of those people will come. So you start to make connections. And it's, it's nice if there are people who are around. If you're, you know, try out a group that meets and see how it feels and see who might be involved. And if there isn't something local, you can look around online. That's what I would do. The Buddha really praised having good spiritual friends. And um, it's worth making the effort, I think. Any other comments or questions at this juncture? No? Okay, so I've got... We've got one more sutta to look at, and it's quite short. The five powers. Do you want to take a break? Anybody else? No? Yes? No? Yeah? Okay. Okay. Take, take, take a few minutes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can I ask you a question then that is Sure. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.